to the rock. If you've ever been involved in a relational conflict in a church setting, you'll benefit greatly from the insights found here in 2 Corinthians. Pastor Paul must defend himself and his ministry against false accusations made by church troublemakers. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse series through 2 Corinthians entitled Strength Through Weakness. Alrighty, good evening everybody, good evening. It is time to get back to our study, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. That's where we're headed tonight. And so as you put your finger there, we will go to the Lord in prayer. Now, Heavenly Father, just such a, hmm, a sensitive, sad kind of topic to see the Apostle Paul having to defend himself and the church fighting and all kinds of problems, Lord, and sadly, we could relate all too easily to everything we see in the passage tonight. So help us, Lord, to hear what your spirit would say. And as we learn through their mistakes and through their successes, Lord, what to avoid and what to emulate. In Jesus' name, amen. The saddest place in the whole wide world to have a falling out with anybody, to have a relationship go bad would be in a church between believers where there are arguments and cold shoulders and misunderstandings and hurt feelings and people not talking to each other and gossip and slander and folks taking sides in the house of the Lord. And the reason I think it's so pathetic and so sad is the paradox of that. Uh, that the faith family, the local church, biblically speaking, is the last place in the entire world you would expect to find that kind of behavior. You know, it would be as shocking as to see corruption in the court system, right? Or, uh, well, it should be shocking. (laughs) Abuse in a care home. Yeah, an arsonist at the fire department. Those kinds of things happen, and when they do, they just really, they're shocking, they're shocking. And nothing is more shocking than the place that Jesus said, (laughs) he said, the whole world will know that you are Christ's follower by the way you love one another. So that when you walk into a church and everybody's squabbling over petty little issues and it's cold in there, Uh, That is really saying something and saying something incredibly um, terrible as it describes what a failed witness, a failed church really. And so this, unfortunately, is what was going on in first century Corinth, which is southern um, Greece, their modern day speaking. And um, it was a travesty there at Calvary Chapel Corinth, CCC. All right, 
And, and I almost don't want to identify with them because they had so many problems, but uh, that's reality. And I call it a travesty because what was going on there at that church, even though they were the Church of God at Corinth, it was such a false and absurd and distorted representation of what it means to know the Lord, to be baptized with his love, to be changed and to have this joy and peace uh, in the Holy Spirit. So sadly, the beloved, our beloved Apostle Paul, who sacrificed so very much and loved those people so dearly and was the father of their faith and the founding pastor was the object of their vitriol. In other words, their cruel, bitter criticism. Now, you might be asking yourself, how could anyone in the entire world ever be cruelly critical of somebody like the Apostle Paul, such a man of God. Well, in a nutshell, since you might not have been here last week, or, or you were here and you've totally forgotten every last thing, like, I mean, sometimes I don't even remember what I said. You know, the Pastor Paul and his team planted a church there in Corinth, as I said. It was a large, thriving, zealous church, but not without its moral an ethical problem, serious character flaws for sure. The gospel caught on there in Corinth uh, like fire. And uh, uh, Corinth was like the Vegas Strip kind of atmosphere, a port city with a bunch of sailors and all kinds of problems with prostitution and that kind of debauchery as uh, the King James likes to throw that word around, but it was really very descriptive of what was going on there. So after uh, 18 months, a year and a half, Paul uh, planted that church. He left there. He left Greece and went to Ephesus, to, which is modern-day uh, Turkey. And, and from reading 1 Corinthians, we find out what was going on there. Lots of problems. They were forming cliques around their favorite pastors. And they, were, they had some rampant uh, sexual immorality going on. They were dragging each other into court over the petty little problems. They were getting drunk at home fellowship group uh, on the communion wine and carousing. And 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, have you guys noticed that you guys are getting sick and dying? Uh, can you, uh, you, there might be a reason for that. So when you get drunk on the communion wine and turn the home fellowship group into a place of carousing, you, you can expect not to be blessed. <laughs> Uh, and maybe God was trying to get their attention, and he was. And so, uh, and then on top of everything, we learned from 2 Corinthians uh, that there were false teachers in there just waiting to take uh, advantage of Paul's absence to get in there. They were jealous of Paul. They wanted to force their way onto the platform and take over. They weren't qualified. They had the wrong motives, and um, it was uh, just a big threat for sure. So here's what happened. Um, Paul made an unannounced visit. Paul had told them after he heard well, all of these problems, Paul had told them, I'm going to come to you and you've you got to fix these problems. Now, would you, do you want me to come and, and, and with a paddle and that there'll be fireworks and problems or do you want me to come uh, gently with a spirit of love? And uh, that was 1 Corinthians 4. He, he asked them that. Well, he ended up making a surprise visit there. And it was 
a painful visit. They weren't ready to repent. So he went to try to facilitate some repentance in some of these issues. Now, the big ticket item, a lot of people got offended because there were a lot of people who needed to be corrected. And people don't generally like to be corrected. And when the wrong people get corrected, who don't value that kind of thing, then there's going to be trouble. So there was trouble. But the key troublemaker that caused the writing of 2 Corinthians was who most commentaries believe it was, was the 1 Corinthians 5 guy. All right. The 1 Corinthians 5 guy was a man who was in a relationship with his stepmother. And the church was, on, uh, was uh, famous for this. And instead of being humiliated and dealing with it, somehow uh, they kind of liked the special attention and the church was not doing anything. So he went and said, have you fixed this problem yet? And the guy said, no. What's wrong with you? You know, uh, And he justified it. And so there was, he... The first Corinthians 5 guy, as I like to call him, he rallied and recruited and, and started making accusations. And Paul left, followed up with a very sorrowful letter. And that's what was going on. Now, in return for being corrected to tell the church, you have to put this man out of the fellowship since he won't repent of this terrible thing. Um, that man, in return, made a list a, a legion of lies about the Apostle Paul for which the purpose of 2 Corinthians is to defend himself against the legion of lies. He's defrauded everybody. He's wronged people. He's abusive with his power. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is going to say, make room in your hearts, Corinthians. We haven't corrupted anyone. We haven't wronged anybody. We haven't exploited anyone. Uh, and we've done no such thing. And so the entire letter was about uh, defending himself in the ministry against accusations from this guy who got corrected and didn't enjoy the process at all. Now, some good news. Now Paul is away, and he's had the painful visit, and he's had the whole commotion, holy pandemonium broke out there. And so... Uh, Titus came to him while he was visiting the Philippians, and he said, listen, things are better. The guys repented. Uh, things are going much better. Things have calmed down there. And so he's writing 2 Corinthians and, and expressing his joy that, that things seem to be going better. And so uh, since this guy was now coming under in doing uh, the church discipline process, Paul says, now I want you to change your attitude toward him and I'm going to give you some counsel to do with this guy who they had mm, disallowed from their fellowship. All right, he wasn't allowed anymore. The ushers were at the door and if they saw him coming, they'd say, you're not welcome here. All right, so now that he's repented, it's time for a different course of action. And here's the paragraph. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he grieved all of you, to some extent, not to put it too severely. And the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, 
you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Verse 9. The reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. In other words, are you going to excommunicate him or not? That's the reason he wrote them. Now, if you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we're not unaware of his schemes. Now, I fully intended to get to the end of the chapter tonight. But with a paragraph like this, you know, it, it, it would take more than a miracle. <laughs> it just, uh, there, trust me, there's a lot to talk about in this paragraph, as you can imagine. Now, this pa- passage deals with the highs and lows of what we call church discipline. How someone who falls into sin in a public way can find public restoration in the faith family. How to make the best of a really bad situation. These are some of the things you could be thinking about as we walk through this paragraph together. So first off, we'll leave the text up there. Apparently, the painful visit and the the painful letter has done some good. And this guy is repenting. Now, notice Paul's tact. Now, now first of all, you're, you're asking the question, what kinds of things will be helpful in a relational fallout among Christians? And the first thing I see is Paul's tact when talking about it. So, number one, you use sensitivity about sensitive topics, like a relational fallout. Where, where wounds are just healing, you have to kind of tip toe around the tulips, as it were, okay? And so without rehashing anything, you'll notice, just notice how sensitive he is to the offending party. The guy's going to go anonymous. Now, there are, are times in the beginning of when you're dealing with somebody, when he's dealing with somebody, he'll say, watch out for homogenes, watch out for Philetus, watch out for Alexander the coppersmith. These are guys who still are those people, Watch out for you, Odia and Sintike. They need to get together. So that, that's not always the way to avoid calling somebody out. But after he's called them out and after he's come under and after there's been holy pandemonium and recruited people who are all on his side and the thing is like a, a minefield. Now we're going to not call out his name again. We're going to say, if anyone, we all know who we're talking about. And we're going to use the word if. If anyone has caused pain, oh, it's the softest possible terms. We can learn something. In chapter 7 and verse 12, he refers to him as the one who did wrong. And so what he's doing is just kind of making sure he doesn't unnecessarily rip the scab off of something that's trying to heal. Oh, my word, I see this all the time with people who who don't have the common sense to just don't bring it up again. Why do you keep talking about it? Every time you bring it up, it doesn't have a chance to heal. I'm not talking about when things need to be talked about, but this thing has been talked through. And action has been taken and tears have been shed. 
And changes have been made. It's time to move forward. So he's, he's just going to tiptoe around and see if anyone's caused somebody pain. And, and, and he's going to resist the, the temptation to recount the event so that he can say how right he was and how wrong this guy is. Remember, this is the guy who's, who, who's gossiped and, and undermined his relationship with these dear people. And look at how kind he's being. Why? Because there's something bigger than his hurt feelings. There's something bigger than the squabble between these two guys. He's saying for the f- sake of the church, he's going to generalize and be so sensitive, you know. So um, I went to a marriage conference once. And they started off by saying, we want you to separate now. We want you to go into your hotel room and we want you to First, let's start off with the most painful memory that you could think of in your marriage. And so I was not in charge. I don't like it when I'm not in charge of those kinds of things because that would never have happened. I would have gotten up and said, I want you to go to your hotel rooms and I want you to think of the happiest, most joyous memory. I want to start on that note. I don't want to start with fireworks and explosions and a black eye. It would have been mine. And so everybody went back and believed me. There was murmuring. Believe me. There was sourness in the room because they had to go back and talk about things. What are you going to stress your broken ankle and just let's test it and see how much weight that once broken ankle that had to have a metal plate put in. Let's just see how much weight it could bear. You know, why do we do things like that? Or, you know, let's stare at the scar. And just stare at the scar. What kind of feelings are you having now? Let's poke around in the bees hive, where the bees hive is. Let's see what happens if we just poke long enough. And it's, it's kind of like, just let it go. Okay. So the second thing I see him doing now, in relational fallouts, really, um, is to minimize his personal pain. Here's what he's saying. It's not, it's not about my pain. Oh, but it was. It was. Because in uh, chapter 2, I believe, no, 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 no. There's a section in which he uses the word pain. Where is it? Yes, it's in chapter 2, but it's in verses 1 through 5. So he uses the noun pain twice, and he uses the verb five times. In five verses, there are seven references to his pain, his distress, his turmoil. But then when he's recounting it sensitively, not wanting to bring the whole thing up again, he's going to say, he's going to say, it wasn't a big deal to me. He's minimizing it. Instead of saying, you guys have no idea how much that hurt me. And why does he say it? Why doesn't he say that? Because until the person who's the victim can get over it, then those who picked up the offense for the victim can't get over it either. So there are people who would die for the Apostle Paul. They love him to death in Corinth. And they are offended to the bone that this immoral pervert would say such terrible things about the Apostle Paul. So what he's saying is, hey, listen. He's saying, 
If there was anything to forgive, look at that. What does that mean? What are you saying? There was a ton to forgive. He's saying, listen, that he didn't like me, that he rejected my authority, that he made stuff up about me. This happens every day. I'm used to it. You know. So is, was there something to forgive? I don't consider that nonsense in my line of work anything to forgive. It's part and parcel of my life and my calling. If I were keeping track of everybody who got their nose out of joint because of, of every sermon I've ever preached, he's saying... I don't even know. Yes, I've, of course I've forgiven him. If there was anything to forgive. Wow. And it wasn't so much my pain as what he's caused the whole church, people. So he's signaling all you fans of mine out there, you can get over it because it wasn't a big deal to me. I'm not still thinking about it. I'm not even remembering what it was. Was there anything there? I don't even know. Remind me. No, don't remind me. <laughs> So that was, and, and, and here's the thing about church squabbles. Bottom line, always. Oh, there's something way more important, bigger, more significant than you and your nose getting out of joint. It's called the unity of the church. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's called the witness to outsiders. Amen. And whether or not you got your, your, your feelers hurt, I'm not talking about real, nasty, terrible sin that needs to be exposed. People, yes, common sense. I'm talking about 90% of what goes on in churches. Squabbling, you know. Somebody sees a, a group on Facebook and they didn't get invited. Why didn't they get invited? Who knows? But, you know, there's going to be hell to pay because, you know, they didn't get invited to whatever group was going on there. And this is what we're talking about here. Uh, so he's saying, for all you who are offended with me, stop it, because I'm not offended and I'm not in pain. Let's move on together, amen? I like that. So he's careful the way he talks about it, and he's careful to minimize his own personal offense for the bigger picture, and uh, that bigger picture is, is really reconciliation, right? He wants that, and he has a heart for that. So... Um, Pastors don't have the luxury of playing the victim card. They don't. Somebody told me that once. I think it was a seminary professor. He said, it's not that you won't be victimized. You don't have the luxury of playing the victim card. You just don't. You have to be like Christ. You have to be above all of that. You have to let them say the insults. And, and then, I mean, you protect yourself and all of that common sense stuff. But all the little stuff, you don't just go running after all of that. That's a fool's errand. And so Paul's smarter than that. Verses 7 and 8 in your text, notice it. Now, however, it's time to forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he's going to be overcome with discouragement. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love uh, for him. So sensitive the way you talk about sensitive stuff. And minimize your own pain. <laughs> And then push for reconciliation. What will bring unity? What will be helpful? So yes, there was a time to confront and take care of business. And now there's a time to comfort and take care of the brother. So you remember this brother, this 1 Corinthians 5 guy. Let me 
Refresh your memories. 1 Corinthians 5. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you, Corinthians, my church that I planted, of a kind that even pagan unbeliever idol worshipers do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmother, and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who was had been doing this. For my part, even though I'm not physically there, I'm with you in spirit as one who is present with you all the time. I mean, it's like I'm there. I'm always thinking about you and praying for you, that kind of thing. I have already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. So when you assemble and I'm with you there in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. And then later in the chapter, he says, expel this wicked guy from among you. All right. Now, how many of you are glad we're going to walk through this one? Yeah, because it's, it's got a couple odd phrases in there, not uh, so much odd as intriguing, I should say. And so, first of all, Paul expresses shock, and he says, listen, I, I hear, and I know it's true, that there's a kind of thing that's going on in the church that not even heathen people, atheists, godless people, they even say, ooh, but you guys have embraced it. Now, what, they're proud. Why are they proud? A couple things they could be proud of. We're so tolerant. We're so loving. You know, you don't know the relationship. It was kind of just how it all happened. Was sort of, we could see it coming. And we're just, you know, we're loving and we're tolerant of it. Or the other thing is, is that, hey, you guys, are you from Corinth? Are you you're from Calvary Chapel, Corinth? Isn't that the church where the guy has an affair with his stepmom? Yeah, that's us. Almost not so much approving of it necessary as enjoying the notoriety of it, right? Yeah, almost rolling their eyes, maybe in disgust even. But sort of, yeah, that's us, you know? And Paul's like, you're proud. Are you kidding me? Okay, so the guy and his stepmom Uh, go on Oprah, all right? (laughs) And then they go to Ellen and The View, and they're met with thunderous applause because that which is highly esteemed in this world is detestable in the eyes of God. Oh, but the world stands up and cheers and puts it on the cover of their magazine. Look at this, and call it courageous. You could fill in the blank. I don't even have to pick on anybody. Your minds are already going where they should go. You, you know, look at this deviation from humanity and we're going to label it courageous. And so there, he's being, he's found himself. He's not, you know, he's not conforming to anybody's image. They fell in love, okay? And maybe the dad and the, and the new wife got a divorce. And maybe they got married. It's all legal. It just happens to be his father's ex-wife and his former stepmother. And Paul says, that is so disgusting that you guys haven't mourned over this. And so 
uh, he tells them this, and then he, they still didn't do anything. And then he makes the visit. They hadn't done anything. And then he said, this is what has to be done. And he sent the sorrowful letter. And then finally, they did it. And it was a majority. You shouldn't be proud. You should be humiliated. You shouldn't be you know, tolerating this. You need to deal with it. And it's called church discipline. Now, I'm sure they followed Matthew 18 because Matthew might have been around. It's been 20 years since Jesus died and uh, was buried and resurrected and ascended. It's been 20 years. And so they had church discipline. So number one, Matthew 18 says, you go to the person, you say, bro, you know what? This is crazy. What were you thinking? What are you doing? You've got to stop this. You're a Christian. Remember, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Let let us show you Leviticus in, in the law. It says you cannot have your father's wife. It's in the law because that's what Canaanites did. And so he, uh, maybe one or two bros went to him. And then he said, no, shut up, you know? Oh, mind your own business, man. I mean, we're not hurting anybody. We're two consenting adults. Well, you're two consenting adults in our fellowship. So then the pastors got brought in, and maybe Timothy and Silas and Apollos, or maybe uh, Priscilla and Aquila, who helped found the church. Maybe they came alongside him. No, I don't want to talk to you guys anymore. I've got my real friends. I've got true friends, all right, who really love me, who really accept me, right? And you guys, all you want to do is judge me, right? Well, we've heard this before. And so after they reject the pastors, uh, then it's time for disfellowship. And Jesus says, just help them to feel The consequences of you can't eat your cake, you can't have your cake and eat it too. In other words, you can't enjoy the blessings of fellowship, the blessing and favor of God, and all the privileges and the beautiful things that go along with Christian koinonia. You can't enjoy that and be living in sin. And so in a redemptive move, not in a move just for punishment for punishment's sake, but in a redemptive disciplinary hope of restoration, you say, feel this pain so that you will come back. And so for the purpose, he says, uh, go ahead and hand them over to Satan. All that means is when you excommunicate somebody from Let me see how many churches there were in the world. One, two, three, four. In the world. Not in Santa Rosa. In the world. You had four options. So the things were a little different. So when you handed somebody over to Satan in Paul's way, you say, look, he wants to play on the the devil's playground. Let him play. So, so don't bring him in. There'll be no prayer covering. There'll be no Christian word of God over him. There'll be no worship. There'll be no protection. And so put him out in the world. Who, and who is in charge of the world? The prince of the power of the air under which the entire world is under his sway. I should say First John chapter 5. The whole world lies under the power of the devil. There it is, plain and simple. So he says, put him out of the church and then give him what he wants. And then for the destruction of his flesh, flesh means sinful nature. 
And so what he's saying is that the wages of sin is destruction and death. So let it play out. Let him reap the consequences in Satan's world where he can do whatever he wants. Let some of the consequences come to him and he will no longer be prompted to sin in that way. That's the destruction of the flesh is that he'll get so tired and, and, and associate the pain with that kind of sin that that sinful prompt will be destroyed in him. Oh, there are people who have suffered so much from sexual sin. They either got a disease. Once you get a disease, the fun is gone from that choice. Right? And if, you're, if your life is threatened by one of your sins, which sins often do, suddenly, see, your flesh, the sinful flesh, has been destroyed in that they don't go back to that ever again. Because God let it play out. He let it, this is what you want. You can't stop. Nobody can stop you. So here, touch the flame. And then they don't want to touch the flame anymore. That's all that that means there. So sin is not all it's cracked up to be. The guilty conscience got to them. The money runs out. The bills start piling up. The friends start disappearing. Oprah doesn't return your calls anymore. Nobody wants, nobody's interested in your new fresh blog. You know, so it all comes. So uh, a quote about church discipline. The process of church discipline, it worked there. As necessary and needful as it worked then and is now, it's not very effective 2,000 years later. Today, the unrepentant sinner who ignores pastoral care and then resents pastoral action simply leaves the church for another but not before first slandering the pastors, spinning his friends, and recruiting others to take his side by lying, gossiping, in order to save face and lash out in revenge. Then he goes to the church across town, where he relates his victim story full of half-truths and whole lies, and in this new church, he usually goes on well-received. And... Uh, so whenever you hear a pastor, uh, whenever you hear pastor so-and-so treated me like this or that, and you think, that doesn't sound like pastor so-and-so, get the whole story, because there may be a reason it doesn't sound like pastor so-and-so. Get the whole story. Now, time for a story. I was at a church. I was not the lead pastor. I was an associate pastor. And <clears throat> we had a youth guy. He was a terrible employee, just terrible. Three-hour lunches, nobody ever knew where he was, uh, never followed through, uh, talked too much, <clears throat> was immature, uh, not a self-starter, you know, that kind of thing. On top of work-related issues, uh, he crossed some lines with his girlfriend, which he came and told us about. And we said, this can't continue. You can't be working with the kids and uh, have this kind of problem. So uh, he was given uh, three chances. It kept happening. Uh, then he got some counseling. 
the lead pastor graciously, I kept going on. He failed and failed and failed. And plus his work was horrible. Um, the lead pastor graciously let him resign instead of shaming him. Um, he left, but he slandered the poor lead pastor up one side and down the other viciously. So much so that one of my friends, an adult, came to me and said, um, I can't believe how you guys treated him. I said, well, do you want to hear the whole story? I, that just, I was very surprised. This is how powerful gossip is. And the f fake news. <laughs> <laughs> Even my friend. And here's what I said. I said, I don't want to go into it, but I have a few questions for you. Did he tell you about the immorality? No. Did he tell you we spent hours with him trying to help him? No. Uh, that we sent him to counseling and paid for it for six months? No. He didn't mention that. Did he tell you that he was a terrible employee and we reviewed him every few months, and he never changed. No, he didn't mention that. Did he tell you when he was let go, he was paid an extra month? No, he didn't. So my friend said, how do we fix that? And I said, picture a guy who goes up to the top of a tower with a down pillowcase. I've used this before. And he tore it open, and he fluffed it out, and all the down feathers go flying in a million directions. The way you fix that is tell the guy, now go find all those feathers and put them back in this little pillowcase. <laughs> That's how you fix it. And I said to my friend, you don't fix it. But you know what? I wanted to say it, and I didn't say it. Where were you? What kind of A, what kind of friend, what kind of Christian? What, don't you understand that when, the, when one person tells their side of the story, there's always another side of the story? Why don't you wait before you assume that it was all true and come to me and say, how could you have treated him that way? Did it sound like us? Does it sound like the lead pastor? No, of course not. Then why didn't you come and ask? Why didn't you send him back? Why didn't you put him in check? You're part of the problem. I wish I would have had the nerve to say that. I might have said a little bit of it. <clears throat> it was a long, long time ago. So he, you know, <laughs> the way he thanked us, I mean, I was just a small part on the staff, but the way he thanked the lead pastor and the pastors for all of that was to go out and lie and recruit others and spin them so they left the church and could no longer hear the poor, what the pastor was saying to them because they looked at him sideways because all they could hear was the lies from that disgruntled employee. Yikes. That's what was going on and that's how Paul was thanked. And you can only imagine how graciously Paul dealt with this guy who was sleeping with his stepmother. Yikes. So back to verses five through 11. 
I think we're going to finish on a happy note, I think. <clears throat> I'm going to try. And so he says, listen, it's time, folks. Even though all of this terrible thing happened, do you see why he's sensitive? And if anyone, and if there was anything to forgive, folks, because this was explosive, this was hurtful. He spun a lot of people, and they're still talking about Paul. So he just wants it to die down and save the day and help people back into right relationship with one another and with the Lord and with him so that the work of God could continue. So he says, listen, love this effort. He says, let's forgive and comfort and love him up lest the evil one outsmart us. Now, interesting, wonderful strategy. Look at this. Instead of the we win, he loses, or I win and, and you lose kind of thing, he's turning it to we as brothers, him included. We as brothers win, Satan loses. Oh, what a whole different way of thinking of the problem. It's not about who's right, who's wrong, who said what, he said, she said. You know, how many people agree with him? How many people agree with me? Not about that. He says, let's all get on the same team together and fight our real enemy. Lest the devil win. Yikes. So that's what he's doing. He's saying, you know, we got to forgive. We got to bring him alongside. We got to woo him back. We got to get him back undercover, right? Because it's not about us and the immoral brother now, because he's a brother and he's repented. The issue now is stopping the devil from destroying this man now. So C.S. Lewis said about forgiveness, we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to practice it. <laughs> right? Listen, my lips will forgive you and my brain will forgive you. But my heart, oh, it takes, and it depends on who you hurt, who I love, what you said, what you did. It's hard to forgive, isn't it? It depends, right? My lips, it's easy. I forgive you. My mind, I know what Jesus said. Do you want to be forgiven? Then you must forgive or you won't be. Oh, I got that, so I'm going to do it. But my, where's my heart? And, and, and that's why he doesn't stop with, you got to forgive him. He goes on to say, and comfort and express your love. Because he knows us. I forgive you, okay? Whatever, it's fine, no problems. No, you're forgiven, are you kidding me? I forgot all about it, whatever. Do you get what I'm saying? All too well, don't you? Yeah, you say the words, but you haven't in your heart. So he's saying you got to comfort him. you got to go be uh, outside of the distant cold. I don't like you anymore. I'm holding this over your head at tone in your voice to welcoming him. Now, listen, true forgiveness neither excuses sin nor ignores what happened, nor does it do away with making appropriate restitution. And depending on what happened and what the guy, how the guy has responded, or the gal, right? 
Sometimes there does need to be distance. So let, let me put it to you this way. I'm, I'm often asked, though, what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is in your heart, letting them off the hook. In your heart. You're not holding it against them in your heart anymore. Now, so many always ask me, must they repent to qualify for your forgiveness? Well, yes and no. It depends. Some of the scriptures seem to say, uh, if they ask for forgiveness, they sin against you, they ask for forgiveness, you forgive them. 70 times 7 kind of thing. And then there are just blanket statements. Uh, Father, (laughs) the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us this day. Uh, Forgive us this day. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. There's no qualification there. So the answer is, must they repent to qualify to be forgiven? The answer is yes and no. For the practical aspects of restoration and reconciliation, yes. If you want a second chance at the marriage, if you want to be reconsidered for the job, if you want to be my friend again, you had better say, yes, you're sorry, this is what you did, and no, you'll never do it again, and should give us a few months of proof of that. Yeah, so outside practical concerns, we need some movement over there for the fullness of forgiveness to happen. But in our hearts, in our hearts, no Christian can walk around with bitterness and resentment and bitterness. There's no way you can do it. So, and, and there's a lot of times when people are not going to give you what you need to make it easy because it does make it a lot easier when they cry and cry hard <laughs> and cry a little bit longer <laughs> and then a little longer then makes it easier. But you're not always going to get that. And then what? You have the right to walk around with resentment and bitterness and holding them up. No, 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 no. You'll hear other pastors say, yes, go ahead and withhold forgiveness unless they repent. I don't suggest you do that. I think there's a mandate spiritually, privately, 100%. It may take you some time, but you've got to let it go and trust God. God says, that's my department. I'm really good at vengeance. He says, trust me, I know them better. I know how to get to them better. I know how to teach them a lesson better than you can. I'm really good at this stuff. It's my department. So give it over to me and let me work. And then you live in your sweet, wonderful, freed up heart. That's room for mercy and love and joy and peace, but just get rid of it. So that's the answer to that. Um, One quote, and then I'll wrap up. Forgiveness is to be extended carte blanche to all who trespass against us, as he taught us to pray. Forgive us our sins as we forgive others who trespass against us, so that no Christian heart is filled with resentment, anger, or bitterness. We must forgive without condition. And so that's kind of the quote which I sort of paraphrased, right? So in my heart, you're off the hook. Now, uh, forgive and comfort him. Comfort him means to encourage him. So every time he's saying, I'm such a loser, I can't believe everybody's looking at me. No, 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 no. And use the scriptures to encourage him. Does he need a new place to live? 
It probably does. If you consider what he was doing, maybe you have an extra room. We gotta, here's what he's saying. We gotta outwit the, the enemy because God used the enemy to kind of bring him to a good place. But a day too long with the enemy and you blacklisted him, when he's ready to come back, the enemy's gonna say, see, there's no place for you. I've got a place for you, come with me. And he'll harden his heart. So when it's time for them to come back into fellowship, that's why forgiveness is so important. Because God can't work in them unless you give them the place back. Do not burn the bridge. Uh, We've got all kinds of family things going on in our family. And our motto is don't burn the bridge. Keep the bridge. Whatever you can do to keep the bridge. Because the gospel goes there. Right? You burn the bridge. I mean, sometimes they blow the bridge up. What can you do? As far as it depends on you, Paul says, you keep the peace. You make peace, right? And so this is what was the big concern. Don't blacklist him. Welcome him. So in closing, the greatest commandment in the entire Bible is to love God with everything you got and to love others. And if you, my dear Christian friends, if we are called to love our enemies. Love your enemies. If your enemy is hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them a drink. If that's what God commands of our enemies, how much grace and mercy and forgiveness and love must we show to our brothers, our blood-washed brothers and sisters, who, yes, they were insensitive. Yes, they fell. Yes, they've sinned. Yes, they've done terrible, hurtful, stupid, self-absorbed things. How much more must we love them? Amen? Let's pray together. Father God, what a fitting conclusion on Valentine's Day. A call to love unconditionally with wisdom as we've been talking about. Help us, Lord, to be the kind of people like Paul who can use tact tact and diplomacy and to speak sensitively, Lord, and to promote unity and love and to minimize our personal offenses for the bigger picture and be someone who woos people back to the fold and not alienate them. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.